When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing. Hello everybody and a very warm welcome to the first of the Motorsport Magazine podcasts of 2012. Half a century since Graham Hill won the World Championship in a BRM. It's quite a conversation stopper, I think. Um, anyway, on we go. And uh, as you know, the Motorsport Magazine podcast, uh, we have one every month. And we bring you the very top people, the inside stories from the past and from the present, without hacking a single mobile phone. Anyway, today we start at the top, where we continue to stay throughout the year. We have Pat Simmons with us, uh, from obviously you will remember Benetton, Renault, and now with Marussia, the new Formula One team, which used to be called Virgin. Uh, we have our usual team on board, Nigel Roebuck, Ed Foster and Damien Smith. Uh, we are going to tell you about something quite exciting, which uh, many of you will know by now, but we have an iPad version of Motorsport magazine. Yep, we are with it here. If you're already a subscriber to our printed magazine, you can access every issue now on your iPad. Absolutely free. And if you're not a subscriber, you can buy individual copies on the newsstand or become a digital subscriber. Yep. It's the same content, only there's more of it, including extra photographs and slideshows, videos and links to audio podcasts, like this one, and to our Motorsport magazine website. So hopefully you have an iPad. If you don't, that's all irrelevant. Um, Pat, we haven't um, even started testing for the 2012 Formula season yet, but this might be something quite close to your heart, I think, because we're already getting details about a reactive ride height suspension system that Lotus and Ferrari will have. Can you explain to us what, what might be this reactive ride height suspension system? Well, I think we have to emphasise the might, actually, because obviously we haven't seen it yet. Um, we've seen some drawings, we've seen some illustrations, I'd call them, uh, in the magazines. Um, and I, I think basically, that really, everything is about controlling the front ride height of these Formula One cars at the moment. Um, and of course, with so much downforce on the cars, the faster they go, the more they're squashed down into the ground. And so lots of things are done to, to try and mitigate that effect and to, to keep the car at a constant ride height. Because you don't want the car very high up in the air at low speed just because it, it gets pushed down at, at high speed. And I think the system that uh, Lotus have been working on, and it's Ferrari are claiming they've been working on a similar thing, is something that 
um, mitigates this problem of the car being squashed down into the into the ground. Now, exactly how it works, I don't think any of us know yet. Um, I think that it, we've seen the illustrations that show that it's a sort of hydraulic system that's linked to the, the push rods. What we do know is that it has to be entirely passive. It can't be a, a, an intelligent control device like active suspension because, of course, that would be illegal. So something quite clever there. Um, what's it going to be worth? Well, of course, you know, everyone's claiming the 0.3 of a second that seems to be the come straight out of the book for claiming everything that's new. <laughs> Um, I would doubt that. Uh, I think it's a very, it's a nicety. It's uh, definitely icing on the cake. But I, I think we're going to see perhaps some more interesting things this year. The thing is, that you're, you're quite well known for innovation in engineering. It's it's what you do, isn't it? Uh, when you hear about something like like this, do you, frankly, do you think, oh, I should have thought of that or not? Yes. <laughs> Always. Uh, uh, not so much with that one, but you know, some of the things uh, that, that have happened in the past, I, I mean, the F-duct, for example, I think was a, just a, a fantastic bit of lateral thinking. Um, other things, you know, over the last few years, something like the double diffuser, I'm not so convinced. You know, to this day, I think that that was a, really a bit of a travesty of, of the rules, and it, it came down to semantics in a way that was way beyond you know, what the, the general public would ever be expected to understand, and that's not a good thing for the sport. Okay. Well, I mean, Formula One really would not be Formula One unless we had this kind of thing going on, would it? I mean, it, it is very typical, isn't it, especially in the modern era of someone to come up with something apparently very clever. And I guess it remains to be seen whether it becomes something that everyone's going to have to have or it's a failure. It could go either way, could it? Yeah, it could. <laughs> I, I think the important thing, though, is what you said initially. It is part of the mystique of Formula One. And I was quite gratified when Photo did what I think has been the only real market research into Formula One. And by that, I mean, you know, it wasn't based on a motorsport website or anything like that. It really was going out and, and doing it scientifically. I was very pleased that technology figured quite high. In fact, I think it was third in the sort of list of attractors to, to Formula One. And of course, as an engineer, that pleased me. Uh, and I think that this sort of thing is something that gets people talking, even if they don't understand all the nuances of it. They don't need to. It's the fact that there is something technical Supposedly, lead, supposedly leading edge, and indeed, if there's a little bit of mystery about it, that's actually not a bad thing either. No, I agree. I agree. But I th I mean, Nigel Roebuck is not a fan of of um, the gizmos, are you, Nigel? Um, I'm not a. I'm fundamentally not a fan of anything that I think the driver should do. Uh, but that's why I always hated traction control because to me it was an abomination that. Um, yeah, that that was one of the things that has separated the Clarks and the Senna's and the and the whatnot from the, you know, yeah. the riffraff. <laughs> the riffraff. <laughs> Thank you. Over time, and it it struck me. I remember, you know, when I think probably '93 was the there was the height of the of the gizmo. I mean, we even had ABS brakes, you know, at that time. And it always struck me as significant that the two drivers who hated all that the most were Senna and Prost, because inevitably, you know, it was diminishing what they had over you know over most of the others so you could you could understand that 
Can I just say, but my favourite cars, of course, were the 93 cars. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, that doesn't surprise me at all. But no, I no, wonder no. why. No, 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 <laughs> I, absolutely. I, I, honestly, that really doesn't surprise me, Pat, because that's, you know, that's... It was engineering at its height, uh, wasn't it? Of course, it, it, yeah. it absolutely was. But, yeah. but I do have a lot of sympathy for your view, and I do agree with your view. I, I do actually think that they were way over the top of a combined sport. You know, it, it's not an engineering exercise. That's just part of it. Mm. And I do think the 93 cars were way beyond the pale. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but you've also worked with some absolutely wonderful drivers, and, and we've seen Vettel these past two years reign supreme. I mean, you've worked with Schumacher, you've worked with Alonso. Is that, is that a 0.3 factor for you? Uh, funnily enough, yes, I think it is. Um, I think even more so in the old days. Now, I, I worked with Senna in his early days, and I think he was worth more than that because, you know, the, the driver was more important because there was less engineering support around him. Yeah. Uh, and when I worked with Senna in the 80s, um, you relied on the driver to do an awful lot of things that, these days, you, you wouldn't even think about. Yeah. I, simple things, you know, what's the water temperature, what's the oil temperature? The guy had to look at a gauge, you know, just like in your road car, and he had to remember the numbers, and he had to tell you when he came back to the pits. Um, I mean, it's inconceivable these days, but, you know, they, they were worth a lot, those guys. And, and those who can do all those sort of things, and of course, there's a lot less these days, but you still want the guy thinking about what's making the car go quick. Those that can do that without losing time are worth that 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5. Do you think nowadays, I mean, the cars being so aerodynamically developed, are we getting back into that stage where, I mean, it's, it's very A lot of drivers can come into F1 having never driven a Formula 1 car and be sort of there or thereabouts almost straight away. Do you think, you know, we were talking about, obviously, Senna and Prost hating all the gizmos because it made the, as you put it, like the, the riffraff being able to compete on almost a level terms with it. Is relative, it. I mean, are we a bit like that now? With no, I, I, I don't think so because the difference between there and thereabouts is enormous. You know, that's the difference between a champion and a driver. That's the difference between... Premier League and your, your local football ground um, and there's no doubt in my mind that it's the driver that contributes that last bit and I don't think, yes aerodynamics are getting such that cars are less likely to be aerodynamically unstable and things like that so yes, maybe a little bit easier to drive I, I've been working a lot in the last few months really with trying to push our aerodynamicists to make the car easier to drive because now I'm working in a team that has, well, one inexperienced driver. You know, I think these sort of things are important. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't go as, as far as saying it makes life easy. It's not easy to drive a Formula One car, I'm sure. Actually, I think we wanted to talk to you about the, one of the, the, the young, the, the rookie, Charles, is it Pick or Peak? Pick. Pick. Well, it's that simple. Is it, is it the shortest ever surname in Grand Prix racing? Um, anyway, uh, how do you think he'll go? And it's, I mean, it's quite a challenge, isn't it? And he's got Glock there who's quick, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, Timo is quick. He's um, bright. He works hard. Uh, it, it comes naturally to him. And I think with Charles, you know, he, like all rookies, he, he's got a lot to learn. Um, 
And it was quite interesting, you know, that uh, when these guys go to the young driver's test in Abu Dhabi, you actually see a difference between those who just had some exposure and those who haven't. And even something simple like doing the, the straight line testing that we all do to, to do our aerodynamics and everything, the guy just gets, you know, he, he works with the team, he gets an idea of what the, the multitude of controls on the steering wheel do, uh, he gets to know some of the terminology and things like that. And with Charles, uh, he hadn't had that um, initiation, for want of a better word, and it shows. So it's you know it's just another hill to climb on the way to the mountain, and um, it, it's damn hard work for these guys. But I think by having a good atmosphere in the team, you know, and and helping them, and not being a prima donna and saying, well, you know, he's what does this guy know? He's only just started. Yeah, that's the worst thing to do. You've got to welcome him into the team. You've got to put your arm around their shoulder and say come on look we'll do this together yeah because yeah, confidence is a big thing isn't it uh, self-esteem yeah. in any sport is everything it, re it really is you know it's it's what made Nigel Mansell what he was and um, yeah I think particularly yeah, yeah, with the young yeah. guys they've got to have that he's going to say never had a problem with self-esteem <laughs> <coughs> He's on form this morning, Mr. Rover. We've had the riffraff, and we're about to go to Mansell. I forgive my inter interrupting, Robert, but, but I'm, I'm just at the moment reading um, Peter War's book, and his Memories of, uh, of Lotus, and the um, memories, obviously, of Chapman and, and the drivers and so on. And he, but he reminded me in there of uh, just talking about the, the, the rules at any given time in Formula One. And I remember Chapman saying this, and it, it came back to me when I, when I reread it, that fundamentally Colin believed Formula One should be, there should be strict rules about engine size, there should be strict rules about the fuel you can use, uh, and there should be a box into which every Formula One car can fit from uh, length, width, and, and height. Other than that, get on with it. Would that be... I mean, that obviously was a sort of dream yeah, scenario. Would, would you feel the same about that? My engineer's hat on, of course I would. I'd love it. Um, if I really want to look after the sport, no, I don't think it's a good thing. And, and you know, it's interesting because Colin was a, a chassis guy. So you'd expect him to say, oh, well, you know, let's have a standard engine. Let's play with the chassis. Um, if, you, if you'd asked... Uh, Tony Rudd at that time, he'd have probably said, well, you know, go and buy a car and let's have free engines in it. You know, it, it's all a matter of opinion. But the fact is that in those days, you know, teams were small and it was about innovation. The rule book was 30 pages. No, it wasn't 30 pages. It was less than that. Even, even when I started, it was less than that. Um, so there, there was innovation. There was the culture of innovation as well, rather than the culture of the lawyer, you know, does this comply with the rules and everything. But if that had been allowed to proliferate, there is no doubt it would have become an arms race. You know, Okay, it has, I know, but it, it would have got even worse. And I think one of the things we did very well in the technical working group over all the years, uh, and still continue to do, is to just rein that in a little bit at a time. And I think, actually, FOTA, which you know, I hope we're not seeing the demise of FOTA because it's done many good things, but the one thing it's done that has been absolutely fantastic is bringing those costs down, as well as bringing a lot of innovation, which we can talk about as well. Um, just, just out of interest, how many pages is the rule book now? 
Um, I think that the, the main technical regulations run into the high 80s and then there's about a similar number in the appendix and then of course you've got the sporting regulations which do have some technical content in them as well. Um, yeah, you, yeah, you need to, <laughs> and, and it's so difficult to remember all the aspects of it. Bedtime reading, <laughs> I reckon. On the, on the point of photo, Pat, um, did the resource restriction work last year? Certainly did for our team. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we had no danger of breaking through that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think it did. Uh, you know, there are many aspects to, to the resource restriction, uh, and, and people focus a little bit on the headcount and the external spend part of it because there are rumours, it's alleged, etc, etc, that you know, people have gone through it. But they, they forget many of the other things, you know, the fact the engine limitations, um, which, you know, brought the number of engines we used down from sort of 150 to, well, less than 20. Um, the, the testing restrictions, you know, which really, they, they when, once the test teams were disbanded, there was a huge saving for the teams. Um, wind tunnel restrictions and, and CFD restrictions, all of them done an awful lot to save money. They're all photo initiatives initially. Um, some of them still exist outside of photo, so even if, you know, even if photo does cease to exist, there are legal documents signed by the teams which are binding outside of photo uh, that I think still have to be applied, although I'm sure that there might be others who may not agree with me. Um, and the other good thing is, you know, a lot of these initiatives have now actually been uh, encompassed in the FIA rules. So, yeah, there have been a lot of good things coming from it. And, and I do think, you know, financially, Formula One is hardly sustainable at the moment. And without the work that has been done by the TWG, by the TRWG, which is the equivalent within FOTA, uh, it would be even less sustainable than it is now. Yeah. And, but how can FOTA continue to have an influence with... Ferrari and Red Bull not at the table? Uh, it's difficult, isn't it? Uh, and, and the trouble is, of course, that really this just takes us back a little bit to why FOTA was, was formed. Um, we're in Concord negotiation year. As of January the 1st, 2012, uh, the, uh, the negotiations on Concord, the next Concord, uh, open up because interestingly within the last Concord there was a, a clause which said you can't do deals before January 1st 2012 and now we're past that um, and it's interesting because photo really was formed very much on the back of doing the last Concord agreement and it's interesting it looks like it might break down on the back of the new Concord and that's that's a great shame I think because um, I, I think that you know the, the teams can do an awful lot and and I really hope that in negotiating with, with the commercial rights holder, with Bernie, we don't lose the, the other good things. We don't, don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, now, having said that, I think that the, the culture and the mindset within Formula One is very different to, to that which existed just a few years ago when Photo was, was formed. And we do have these things now where people are a bit more prepared than they used to be to actually give up a little bit in the interests of the sport. Um, providing we continue with that, then 
the loss of photo won't be the end of the world but I, I do hope we do continue with that yeah. I, I honestly don't think you'd have got uh, although DRS wasn't a, a photo initiative it was a, an FIA initiative I don't think you'd have got that without this sort of uh, general consensus that, that you have within teams now. Now I know Nigel doesn't like that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was perhaps not a great example <laughs> to use. Should, should we no, give I it mean, to DRS? I, 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 I fundamentally <laughs> entirely agree with you. I think I think photo is almost a necessity. I think I, I think yeah, I, I would I be agree. very very sad to see it disintegrate. Yeah, I like I like Damon Hill's description of DRS. He calls it that that flappy wing. That allows you to overtake and then be overtaken again. <laughs> that flappy wing, are you sure he wasn't talking about the front of the Red Bull? <laughs> <laughs> you said it, Pat. <laughs> um, actually, as we mentioned Red Bull and its, uh, and its front wing, um, do you think, Pat, that, bearing in mind we, we don't have that many rule changes for this year, um, okay, the, well, the double diffuser's gone, but do you see a big change in the form book, or do you think that... Yeah, in interesting question, because, yeah, we, we, we have less changes and clarifications this year than, than normal. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, there are two sort of fundamentals in my mind. One is the repositioning of the exhausts, uh, and the other is the very recently... Um, clarified, I won't say introduced, recently clarified rule that uh, has effectively doubled the stiffness of the of the front wings. Um, there are areas where people have been working very hard. Um, I think with the exhausts there was definitely a, a have and have not uh, and I think it, it was very clear that the front part of the grid had and the rear part of the grid had not. Um, Again, I, I, I suppose, you know, with my Marussia hat on, I'm not sorry to see that go. It was a very complex technology to get to work right. Um, and yes, I think that will close the field up a little bit. Um, the front wing's stiffness, I think most people were <coughs> exploiting that and uh, exploiting it quite effectively, and they will continue to do so even if it's half the amount. So I don't think that that's a, a game changer. So fundamentally, I, I don't think we're really going to see the, the grid shaken up. Um, I, I think we might see it close up a little bit. You know, I, I think there will be other changes that might be as significant. You know, Williams with the, with the Renault engine, what's that going to do to them? It, it's, things like that are interesting. I must say I'm intrigued by... Um the stories coming out of Italy, and well, including you know Domenicali himself talking about the forthcoming Ferrari. Uh, they're already ahead of time making excuses for how ugly it is, and uh, I and I, and I wonder yeah. in what in what way then is it going to be radical? What do, you, uh, what, do you, what do you think? I don't think I, I think you're going to see a lot of ugly cars this year, uh, and I think this was a little bit of a I was I was praising the teams for sticking together and, and doing sensible rule changes and I'm not going to give an example when they didn't <laughs> and um, the FIA uh, decreed that nose height needs to reduce uh, and this is largely from the work that's been going on within the FIA Institute about launching of cars when they run into the back of other cars and we will and in fact, in, in the 2014 regulations that are published, you'll see the nose height is considerably lower. Now, there was a stage of that done for, for 2012. Now, 
In doing that, it would have been sensible if they'd lowered the height of the front bulkhead. And, you know, we've talked about how many pages of regulations there are, and would you believe, you know, the front bulkhead is a very regulated thing. It has to be a certain height, it must be a certain height of above the ground or relative to the cockpit. Um, you know, its position is regulated. And some teams didn't want that changed, even though the nose height had been changed. And it is going to lead to some pretty ugly cars, I think. Um, it's certainly, you know, obviously I've investigated it. Um, I'm very pleased to say the Marussia, of course, will be a very good-looking car. <laughs> but um, there will be some who, who where there's a, a, a distinct step at the front of the, the chassis down onto the nose, and I think that that's what they're talking about. Um, it does leave a little more area under the chassis to work with, but... Uh, we tried very hard to exploit that and really couldn't get it working so we decided to go with something a bit more conventional but I, I, I'm quite sure that several teams will have kept the front bulkhead high along with the low nose just to give them that area to work in later. This is bad news. Ugly cars. Bad news. Um, Pat, you're working now for one of the so-called new teams, but um, they're, they're not new anymore. Um, and the struggle is to get those teams up into the midfield and, and then eventually further forward. Given how tight things are, um, both with resources, um, with the rules, um, how, how are these new teams ever going to get into the midfield on, on performance alone? Well, firstly, we are a new team, and I think we're the newest team, because uh, effectively we totally ripped up our organisation and redid it on July the 4th, 2011. So I think that makes us pretty damn new. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, an awful lot of changes have happened since then. But you, you're right, you know, it's, it's difficult. Uh, I said earlier that, you know, financially Formula One is barely sustainable. Uh, and by that I mean that, you know, at the front it's barely sustainable, at the, at the back it's very, very difficult and, you know, the recession does have a very significant effect on sponsorship that you pull in. Um, we have set, you know, we, I think we are typical of the, the small teams, we've set ourselves targets, we've let, set ourselves some very regulated growth. Um, I think you know what I'm trying to add to it is just a, a, a real sort of integrity in our engineering so we really think about what we do we don't do things for the sake of it we try and work very efficiently and I think that's something you know going back to the Benetton days that we had I, I think we punched above our weight uh, and certainly at Marussia I hope we can punch above our weight but boy times are difficult at the moment. So would you say that it's it's basically starting from scratch from July? That's and you're going with a more in, conventional approach. In now. many many ways, yes. Um, you know, it, on, on July the fourth, twenty eleven, as I said, you know, we we took over the elements that used to be worth. We moved into factory in Banbury. We we got the race team down in the goodness of time um, into that that factory. We moved marketing in there. Um, we totally reorganised the aerodynamics department, started recruiting um, and really had to reorganise the design department it was actually, you know, that was working very well um, as were elements of the, the aerodynamic department uh, it was just a question of tweaking it and directing it a little bit so yeah, lots of very new things there yeah, absolutely and um, but you know what, what we, we, 
we'd done an upgrade to the car which uh, eventually appeared in, in Singapore, even though we called it the Silverstone upgrade. <laughs> we, we originally had been planned for Silverstone, but of course that was just at the time when the takeover happened and everything. But apart from that, we really didn't touch that car last year. Um, we, we solved any serious faults on it, but left it alone. And, and the race team, um, people like Dave Greenwood, the, the chief engineer there, did a fabulous job just keeping the car racing uh, while we got on and tried to set things up. And uh, you know, that, that includes a wind tunnel program, our, our new deal with McLaren, all these things that were really were so new. Um, you've mentioned the, the deal with McLaren uh, before. I mean, what exactly does that involve? Is it sort of information or parts? Um, very few parts. Uh, we're not about to reinvent the wheel, so if, if there's something we know of that McLaren used that's a, a non-Concord part, because there, obviously there are lots of bits we can't use, uh, including effectively anything that affects the performance of the car. Um, but you know, simple things, we're, we're using some valves in our fuel system that come from McLaren because we knew they had them, we didn't want to redesign them, but it really is very few parts. It's much more about knowledge and IP, and again, within the bounds of the Concord Agreement, which does say that as a constructor you must, uh, you must own the IP of your car and the IP of those areas that affect performance. So it's a really wide-ranging thing, uh, and it goes from use of their wind tunnel, use of their test rigs, um, to all sorts of things that are really good for a new team, you know, even down to supply chain and uh, buyers and things like that, um, you know, where we get things from, how we get the best prices and what have you. And it, it was very much an idea that as a new team, uh, and really to answering the, the question that was asked before, as a new team, how do we move forward? And the answer is, well, you do it the same as everyone else and you plod your way up to the front and you might make it, you might not. Um, Andrei Chegakov, who is the man behind Marussia, wanted to do it quicker than that. So the idea was we had to do something different. We, we, we had to sort of move off this sort of line that's been used so often before. And the idea was to align ourselves with McLaren and learn a lot of process uh, and procedure and things like that. So. It's that type of IP, and uh, I have to say, I think it will be successful. Do you think? Do you think that's partly why Force India have come on so well recently? Do you think it's the connection with McLaren that's been part of that? I, I think it's helped them. Uh, their, their deal is not really the same as ours. It's right. not quite so much about that sort of IP side of things, but right. they do use. Uh, for example, they use a McLaren simulator, as indeed yeah. we do, and things like that will help. And, you know, you can't help but some of that culture yeah. rubbing off. Yeah. But I, let's not take anything away from Force India. I, th I think they've done a super job this year. Uh, well, the last few years, to be honest. And, you know, they're not the, the best finance team on the grid. Uh, and I really I admire them. Yeah, yeah. Pat, you mentioned earlier about the uh, the change to the regulation about uh, the exhaust exits. Um, how much downforce can you quantify? 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How much of a loss that is to the, the top teams who, who, had, who had got it right? Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question, difficult one to answer, and I've been trying to answer that myself um, you know, right through the year. I think that if you, what you've got to remember is that it then it becomes very engine dependent, and the fact is that if you, uh, when the engine is working hard and really helping that diffuser, I think the answer is way over ten percent, maybe twenty percent. But of course, it's not doing that all the time, so you're really then talking about the average over the lap, and I think that. What we saw last season was that people were able to get more and more of that lap average up. Um, uh, and that was largely because of what was happening with the engines. I, I, I don't think that the aerodynamics per se changed that much. I think, you know, from the beginning of the season, those who got it right had got it right. Uh, and then I think the improvements after that really came from the engine. Um, I think it's significant. I, I, I really do. Well, you know, even on those numbers, and they're not exaggerations. They might, if anything, be underestimates. But you know, those sort of numbers are very, very significant numbers. And I think this is probably a question you won't give me a straight answer to. But in terms of clawing back that lost downforce, what areas are we going to be looking at this year? Do you think? Um, well, uh, firstly, I mean, people will, of course, try and claw it back, and I, I think most people will be setting targets for themselves to try and get back to the sort of level they were at last year, albeit without a very blown diffuser. Um, I don't think we've seen that go away completely. Uh, I, I really don't. Uh, and I think that although the rules are, are well written um, to define the exhaust position, I think there are still a few things that can be done, and I think we'll see those things right from the beginning of testing. The rest of it will just come from um, aerodynamic refinement, um, now, of course, there might be something out there, you know, this year's double diffuser or F-duct or something like that that I don't yet know about, I haven't thought about, and someone else might bring something along, you know, that, that, that is a game changer. But 
assuming that's not the case, uh, and even if it is, you know, the, the rest of the work will just be about refinement with a relatively stable set of regulations. Pat, um, you, you're talking about engines there. How is it? How much of a disadvantage, if any, is it to be running a Cosworth engine against these uh, incredibly uh, high-performance and efficient and reliable manufacturer engines? Um, I think the Cosworth engine is a pretty powerful engine. Um, I, I don't think you know there's a real problem in that area. But when you get to the intricacies of mapping the engine with a view to enhancing other areas of the car, and really I mean aerodynamics, then I, I, I think that um, the, the Ferraris, Renaults and Mercedes-Benz of the world are, are probably a fair way uh, further along. Now, that's not because Cosworth couldn't do it, it's because Cosworth are working with teams that can't afford to do it. You know, it's a, it's a commercial thing. Um, if Renault or Mercedes or Ferrari make that decision that they are going to invest in engine mapping, they just go and do it. Um, if we want to do that, it costs us an awful lot of money to go on the dyno and do that, that mapping. And Rubens always said about the Cosworth that it was just what you said. He thought on horsepower it didn't really lack much at all. Um, but he reckoned that on drivability it, was, uh, it wasn't as good as other engines he'd, uh, he'd experienced before. Yeah, I, I, think, I think, you know, it's always difficult with these things. And, and the grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? But there have been, with, with the young driver tests in Abu Dhabi, there have been a few cases of people who've driven more than one car that week. And that's when you start to get, okay, they might be young guys, but, you know, they're not, they're, they're still pretty reasonable drivers. Uh, and I think that they would probably echo uh, Rubens's thoughts. As we're at the uh, halfway stage of today's uh, podcast, let me tell you about the Motorsport Magazine Hall of Fame. On the 16th of February, we will be at the Roundhouse in Camden in London to host our annual Hall of Fame. So far, we've inducted 16 people into this uh, virtual Hall of Fame, including Dario Franchitti, Mario Andretti, Sir Frank Williams, Enzo Ferrari, Jim Clark and Ayrton Senna. Four more greats will be joining this list on Thursday the 16th of February and you can be there to celebrate with us. All you have to do is go to the Hall of Fame section on our new website, which is, in case you don't know, www.motorsportmagazine.com and you can enter a competition to win tickets to be with us at the Roundhouse in London on the 16th of February. So I hope we will see some of you there. That would be great. And uh, just to tell you, it's also a good time to sign up to a subscription. Now, uh, this is important because it keeps us going. And uh, we're offering 30 issues for the price of 24 or 15 for the price of 12. And that is until the end of February this year. 30 for the price of 24, 15 for the price of 12. The offer is available worldwide, so you can get your savings wherever you are. If you've got any questions about that, then you can email us at subscriptions at motorsportmagazine.co.uk. Okay. Um, Pat, we've had a remarkable number of uh, questions on Twitter. Are you, a, are you on Twitter? 
No, I uh, I don't tweet. You don't tweet. I, I occasionally roar, but I never tweet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well we we might get a mild roar from this question. Who knows? Um, it comes from Jeff Collins, and he wants to ask you, Pat. How hard would it be to take a set of photographs of a Red Bull and implement some of the things on that car on your car? He's n- we're not suggesting you do it, by the way. We're just asking how hard that kind of thing would be. Well, I think every team does it, actually. <laughs> um, you know, teams do have uh, armies of photographers uh, at, at the circuits taking really? photographs yeah. of competitors' cars all the time, yeah. And uh, they're carefully analysed. Uh, I think, you know, within the bounds of what you can do with photographs, people even make measurements and uh, survey the other cars. But one of the... Uh, what, what I think is interesting about this question is the answer is you can't really do it, in spite of all that. Yes, you get ideas and you, you look at trends and you look at where people are working and, you know, by looking at differences from one race to the next, you say, oh, OK, these guys have changed their front wing, they're working in this area. Um, if, if you suddenly find they've got a lot of performance, it might guide you into that area. But the cars really have to work as a whole. You, you can't take anything in isolation. Um, so you really have to make the whole thing work together Um, and in addition you know if you don't understand something you're never going to make it work so just blind copying really gets you nowhere same at school you know (laughs) (laughs) something something that's always baffled me is that you know on the grid of a Formula 1 race the Red Bull mechanics are always stood round the back of the Red Bull blocking it off but surely a photographer can just snap that coming out of the pits is that is this just show or it is, is this it is part of the fun I yeah, think. Okay. yeah absolutely it has the story of Colin Chapman with the kettle I think when they were trying to uh, they were trying to disguise some work they were doing on the the differential or something the, the mechanics used to cover something up and always walk out with it and everyone was following that and apparently it was just a kettle under a <laughs> under a cover I think the more of that the better I like all absolutely that. I like all that holding a sheet over things so that's fantastic um this is a bit different. It comes from Lorenzo Maimoni, and uh, he wonders, Pat, whether you can tell us anything about why Massa would appear to have been struggling in 2011. Um, it just didn't seem to be right on it. And you must have seen this many times in your career. Yeah, I think there are two things here. Um, one, we were talking earlier about self-esteem and how important it is to sportsmen. And uh, it's something that very fragile so when you start to get that crack in the facade it opens up and you know is there a harder guy to go up against than Fernando Mm, not sure Uh, so I don't think that's helped at all but I think perhaps more significantly are the Pirelli tyres and the Pirelli tyres really are quite different and we've seen it before you know when people have changed from Michelin to Bridgestone and Goodyear to Michelin and you know you go back as far as uh, as far as you like that Tyres are complex things. They require certain styles of driving. And some guys can, well, maybe their natural style fits that tyre, but some guys can change their style. They can understand the tyre. And I wonder if Felipe hasn't perhaps lost out a little bit on that, as I believe maybe Mark Webber has. And in, in the other direction, Michael... You know, was infinitely more at ease on on the Varellas than he had been on the on the Bridgestones. Well, one, one of the things with Michael, of course, and, you know, having worked with him for many years, to 
to me he is the absolute master of of altering his driving style to to suit the car he used to be absolutely incredible you know in the, in the days when we used to have lots of practice and lots of qualifying and even a warm-up on Sunday morning he used to work and work and work to get the car as good as he could all the way even through qualifying you know, there's no park ferme then you could do what you like so middle of qualifying you'd be changing springs and roll bars and all this sort of stuff and he used to get to Sunday morning when we used to have a half-hour warm-up in the morning before the race and in that he used to at that point he'd, he'd sort of say right done everything I can I've got what I've got now I'll spend half an hour just seeing if I can extract a little bit more out of it and change my driving style and um, you know in the days before we had all the instrumentation because Michael has been around a while <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we, we used to put a, a little uh, cheap Casio watch on the uh, on the steering wheel and cheap you know I'm talking about something I, I, I seem to remember going into uh, Samuel's and buying about 20 of them they're about, <laughs> ten, they're about 10 quid each or something we used to glue these onto the steering wheel and he used to actually press the buttons and time himself in certain bits of the, the circuit and try different things different you know sometimes as simple as a different gear in the corner more often a different line and he used to be really good at adapting his style to the car that we'd given him and that's why I think you know he's learned how to drive on Pirelli's. That is fascinating it's, isn't it? It's interesting that he, that he was never, he never, sorry he never got himself comfortable on, on Bridgestones really did he? He was just, he, he did allude to that once or twice just sort of never made a meal of it but. In the Mercedes. Uh, yeah. In the, 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 the first, first year of the Bridgestones. Oh yeah yeah. <laughs> no the first year of the comeback. Yeah. I, I, but, <laughs> yes, but what did, what, you know he, I, I've often wanted to talk to him about this and never have done because I think it's fascinating that he came back to a totally different car aerodynamically and uh, any aerodynamicist in Formula One will know that the aerodynamic maps of those 2009 onwards cars are so different to the, the earlier ones. Um, he, he came back uh, to no refueling, you know, and he'd been the master of the sprint and all that sort of stuff. So I think he, he actually had so many things to cope with. And yeah, in spite of... And that, that's right. Uh, and so in spite of what I said, I think, you know, he may well have been on overload yeah. uh, as he got into that lot. Uh, as we're on the subject of Michael Schumacher, and I am trying to get in as many Twitter questions as possible, because after all, these are the people who support the magazine. Um, Tom Arnold wants to know, Pat, whether you could have or might have gone to Ferrari with Michael. And was it a... Well, Tom, it's interesting. Uh, at, at the time, yes, of course, the opportunity was there. Um, Ross uh, had made it known he was going to, to Ferrari, and he really was pushing a lot for me to become technical director of Benetton, which I felt was a much... Uh, much more interesting challenge, you know. It, 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 I think the other way it was um, same SH1T different shirt, you know. Whereas this was a new new challenge, uh, and so I, I, I was quite keen to do that. But um, some years later, actually, yes, I, I, I did um, I did consider joining Ferrari, and uh, I think I got as far as in fact probably still got it at home somewhere a contract from them, but never actually signed it. Do you, I, do you find that, um, this is another uh, a question from here, is that, that in your current, I believe that you're sort of 
Is it right? A consultant for my Russia? Would that That's be, right. That'd yeah, be fair. I mean, in the way now, you've got sort of end, you've got, the world is your oyster, isn't it? Because you you can take opportunities much more easily than say you could if you were, you know, the technical director of a big team. Well, yes and no, but uh, you know, I, I, over this last year, I've done some quite interesting work, mm. uh, including some work on aerodynamics of road cars, which was which was really fascinating, really enjoyed it. So it's given me that opportunity, but I do actually have a very strong moral commitment to Marussia. I, I really like the team, I really like the people, I really like what they're doing, and uh, I, I wouldn't at the moment consider um, going and working for another Formula One team. And of course, in my consultancy agreement, I can't work for another Formula One team, obviously. Um, but yeah, a really, really nice team. Really enjoy it. That's good to hear. Good to hear. Um, ben Harris wants to know whether you think that raw car speed has actually hit the limits of the of the tracks we use these days. Um, and if so, you know, are we constantly searching for clever ways to get them quicker through the corners and? Well, no, I don't think it has. Um, again, you know, this is superb work done by the FIA Institute on making the, the tracks um, safer. Uh, and, you know, we've seen the new barriers, the high-speed barriers, the um, tech barriers, uh, the, the, all these sort of things, as well, of course, as continually improving standards on the, the cars themselves. Um, at, you know, some circuits we simply we can't change. You know, you, you can't suddenly say, "Well, let's have huge runoff areas at Monaco." It ain't going to happen. Um, I do think, you know, we, again, the work of the TWG is to, let's say, to limit performance, um, to make sure it doesn't go too far. And you know, a while ago we brought the engines down from three and a half liters to three liters to two point four liters. Um, we've continually limited the aerodynamic performance of the cars. I think we, we get the balance pretty good at the moment. There's a lot of work in it, hell of a lot of work, but I, I, I think that uh, there's some good people working well on it. How, how do you feel? Sorry, Damien. I was just going to say on that point, Pat, for the future, what does the 2014 regulations excite you? Yeah, they do. Um, I, I think the powertrain regulations are really interesting. Um, it's a huge challenge. You know, it, it, you're now dealing with a system, and it, it's absolutely correct to call it a powertrain, not an engine, because it really is a system. And, and the way you use the energy that you've been given is a real challenge. Now, it's a nerdy challenge, <laughs> it's an engineer's <laughs> challenge. But nevertheless, it's one that actually is all for the common good, because I really do believe that the current Kerr system was a step in the right direction, but there were so many things weren't right. Um, the way we were allowed to control curves wasn't right, the power of it wasn't right, the ratio of curves power to internal combustion engine power was wrong. 2014 puts a lot of these things right, and I really, really genuinely believe that some of the methodologies that come out of the, the 24 powertrain regulations really will make a difference in the medium term to, to road cars. Now, I don't think hybrids are the long-term answer, but I do think that there's a medium-term answer there. What about, what about electric pit lane? You know, I mean, silent cars coming down the pit lane. I don't like the sound of that very much. Well, 
You can't like the sound of something that's silent. No, that's silent. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Thank you very much. But is, is there a safety concern there? No, they won't be silent. Uh, honestly, if you, if you, uh, you know, occasionally, even when we run these cars up in the garage with silencers on, you know, and take the exhaust out the back, you should hear how those gearboxes rattle and things like that. Um, I, I think the electric pit lane is quite interesting. Um, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, in real terms, it doesn't do much for you, but you know we've got to remember that we are a show as well, and if we want to show that we are really going in this electric hybrid uh, world, then what better way of doing it than saying, look, you know, reminding people 20, 30, 40 times every couple of weeks that these are electric cars as well. And you, I, I think that's quite good. I thought the smart money was on hydrogen for the future of our road trip. Uh, Hydrogen is just a, a means of transporting energy. I, I'm, not, I'm getting too technical. No, no, at all. Well, for me, but, yes, but, but probably not for <laughs> probably not for people listening. Yeah, and no, that's my job. Hydrogen is a, is an energy storage medium, like many things. You, you have to produce the hydrogen. Yeah. You, know, you have to get the hydrogen, yeah. and it takes power to do that. And yes, it, maybe it is. And this is why I say that hybrids are a medium-term solution, not a long-term solution. Hydrogen fuel cells particularly are, are probably the way of the future, but uh, they, they are a fair way away. We, we need some real enabling technologies to, to move, particularly in fuel cells, to, to that sort of state. Um, hybrids have a, have a role. It may only be for 10, 20, 30 years, I don't know, but uh, they do have a role. Okay. We should ask one killer question for this year as well with the the, the dreaded DRS. Um, do we need it now? Do you think we need it? Is it, is it still required? I was hoping you were going to ask Nigel. I think Nigel will give us his opinion. Well, I'll tell you what, Pat, let's start off from the premise that um, nothing to do with me, something Ross said, that on the evidence of last year, he thinks the tyres, the tyre factor is enough to have, you know, um, reawakened um, Formula One from I, I think that that's probably true. State. Uh, and certainly, yeah, we had a thrilling year of racing, there's no doubt yes. about it. And I would probably, if I had to put a number on it, I'd say that was 80% tyres and 20% DRS. Uh, the tyres were fundamental. But, uh, I still think DRS has a part to play and for a, a year where we were discovering how to use DRS, I don't think it worked badly and I think with a little bit of trimming next year it'll be better again. Um, yes, you could argue that uh, you don't happen to need it right at the moment <coughs> because of the way the tyres are working, but you know that can change a um, couple of years. Uh, are Pirelli going to be supplying the tyres? Are they going to have the same philosophy? I don't think it's a bad thing. So much comes down to Pirelli, doesn't it, in terms of the tyres they produce. You, you know, they, they had that parameters that don't do too good a job last year, um, and they have to sort of stick to that to, to, keep, um, to keep it interesting. Yeah, I mean, they need to really need to come back from where they were in the back end of last season, don't they? Because they, when they, they were getting to the point when they were... They were doing too, too, too good a job. Yeah, yeah. 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 they made times that actually worked. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I can't heap enough praise on Pirelli. Uh, I think yeah. it's, uh, 
it's a really brave thing they've done. It's really good for the sport. I think that the people understand it. They don't criticise Pirelli. They don't say all oh, their tyres don't last. I, I think they've had really good publicity from it, uh, and I think they were they were very brave, very bold, and I really salute them. It's a bit different to the Pirelli you knew from the mid '80s, isn't it? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I started with Pirelli in '81 when they when they came into Formula One, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's moved on a bit since then. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, can you explain something to me which I've never understood, amongst many things I don't understand, and that is, you talked about Massa and Weber possibly not being comfortable with the tyres. I, I don't fully understand what that means. I'm afraid. I mean. Is it is it that sensitive? Neither do Massa and Weber, I guess. <laughs> is it that sensitive? I, to be honest, I don't know. I, I was speculating. I, I certainly okay, don't no, know fine. that that that's, but, but, that's but the reason. People do talk about they, you know how how Vettel is is really great on these tyres, but yeah. someone else isn't. Well, you know, t as I say, tyres are very subtle things. They have subtle nuances and. For example, uh, some tyres are much better at sustaining a cornering load while they've also got a fore and aft load on them. So if you've got a tyre like that, a driver who goes very, very deep into the corner on the brakes, he'll be fine on it. Um, if that's the way he drives and you then change to a tyre which won't sustain a cornering load while it's got a braking load on it, that driver will then find that one of his ways of driving is no longer valid. He's got to change his style a little bit. He's got to get his braking done much more in a straight line before he turns in. Um, some tyres, well, no, no tyre likes a sudden movement. You know, tyres like to be treated gently, but some are more tolerant than others. So if you've got a driver who's very smooth and you've got a tyre that really doesn't like sudden movements and sudden changes of direction and sudden changes of forces then that smooth driver is going to benefit more than he would on a tyre that's very tolerant to those sort of things so there are lots of nuances in in the in the uh, in the tyre that a driver can exploit if I knew them all I guess I'd be a driver and I think they are quite difficult I, I think it's fascinating I got to say Pat I, I was going to what do you uh, what do you think about Ferraris move importing their very own Bridgestone man well I mean Bridgestone as was but I, and, you know essentially just a pure this is how tyres work yeah it, it, it is an interesting move and um, I I first came across Hammy in uh, in Formula 2 days actually when Bridgestone first came to Europe and he was part of it um, I was racing Formula 2 actually with Pirelli then and um, they did a fantastic job in those early days and, and Hammy was very much, you know, the man who, who did that. Um, I think, you know, in, in, in more recent years he's become very much more a manager, you know, this very senior technical manager. And of course, the science has moved on enormously um, in, in those days and indeed, you know, even beyond that. We really did very little tyre modelling. Um, 
you know that that stuff started to come out of the universities and things like that and we adopted it more recently we got into the thermal modeling of tires which is very much something that's happened within racing and has fed out the other way um don't get me wrong hammy's a very clever guy quite a a coup i think for ferrari to yeah. to get him into italy uh had you, had you ever heard that idea discussed? Had you ever heard that idea discussed um, by any other team at any point? Oh yeah, no, yeah, uh, but nobody actually ever. Yeah, oh did yes, it. they have. Yes, uh, in, in Force India, uh, there's one of the Bridgestone guys in there ah, as well, and, right? and in fact, really? in most of the teams now, there is someone who has worked uh, within racing tyre industry. Okay. Um, we're nearly out of time, regrettably, because it's been fascinating, uh, as ever with Pat Simmons. But we, we started when we started right an hour ago talking about reactive ride height system. Um, will we know by the end of February how good that is, or will it be something that takes longer? To, I mean, if it's really that good, will it immediately be? Will the Lotus be quickest in Spain in testing? No, I don't think so. Um, everything's about aerodynamics, and while we call this a reactive ride height system. Or yeah. People call it a reactive well, ride height system. Well, I did call it. I did call it the breaking something. <laughs> yeah. I don't well, know what it, whatever it's called, it, it's not about suspension. Okay. To be honest, it's about exploiting the aerodynamic platform. Right. Um, what we will see in February, as always, is we're never quite sure, are we? At the end of testing, who's really quick yeah. and who's sort of hiding things and and what have you. But uh, as the season progresses, I suspect that this is a a sort of in an an enabling technology. It's a technology that's really there to exploit aerodynamics. It's not fundamental. It, it's it, you can look at some of the, the things that have come along in the last few years, like the inerta, which you know it was very much about the ride of the car and improving the grip and stuff like that, with a very small influence on aerodynamics. This one, I think, is much more about aerodynamics. Okay. I don't like the sound of ugly cars, but let's make up our own minds when we see them when we see them roll out. Um, anyway, let me remind you before we go that uh, we we do now have an iPad edition. Yep, we're going gone digital, and we have an iPad version of our magazine. So if you're already a print subscriber, you can access every edition on your iPad absolutely free. And if you're not, you can buy copies, of course, on the newsstand, or you can become a digital subscriber. It's the same content as the magazine, only there's more of it, including more photographs and slideshows and videos and links to audio podcasts and the website. So, Pat, if you've got an iPad, you can listen to your podcast. Of course I've got an iPad. Of course. <laughs> well, how stupid... What? What a stupid question. Uh, okay, and it's a good time to sign up too for a subscription because we're offering 30 editions for the price of 24. Uh, even I work, can work out that six free ones. Or 15 issues for the price of 12. And this goes right through till the end of February of this year. The offer is available worldwide so you can receive massive savings massive savings wherever you are if you've got any questions email us at subscriptions at motorsportmagazine.co.uk and i'm just going to throw you one last ball pat which shows you just how much attention people pay when they fall in love with formula one because dave charles wants to know what kind of metal is it in the chain that you always wear around your neck 
<laughs> he, yeah, I know. It's quite good. Isn't it? I quite like it. Actually. It's like very, a, very impressed. It, yeah. is, it yeah. is silver. Um, it was. Uh, it's handmade. It was designed by my wife and made by a, a small jeweller in the town where I live. And uh, he is observant. Fantastic. I love it. Well, that's a great note to end on. And uh, Dave Charles, good question. Well done. Thank you very much. Now you know. Fantastic. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed it as much as, as we all did. Um, my thanks to Nigel and to Ed and to Damien, of course, and to Alan, uh, who records all this for us so well. And Pat Simmons, thank you very much for coming in. That's okay. it for now. See you next time. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing.